Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure and, in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 12, season 1, and today I speak to Professor Ken No, a historian and author of the US Civil War. Ken recently wrote a very interesting book on what motivated late enlisting Confederate soldiers to serve the Confederacy during the latter stages of the US Civil War. I spoke to him about these men and what motivated them to join up, as he said, late in the conflict. He spoke to me from his office in America. Hi, Kenneth. Welcome to the Combat Morale podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in men who enlisted late in the Confederate Army during the Civil War? Well, I'm a Civil War historian. I've long been interested in common soldiers as opposed to generals or politicians. But the path that led me to this book is actually quite interesting. Way back in 2002, uh, I was invited to the Library of Congress in Washington uh, to serve as a commentator for a large national conference on the Civil War. And my job specifically was to comment on a paper written by Professor Joseph Glattar, uh, in which he was summing up the literature on Civil War soldiers and suggesting ways to move forward. So I agreed to do that. When the paper came and I read it, I realized that I had a crisis on my hands. Because the paper was so good, I couldn't find anything wrong with it. There was nothing that I could complain about. I really wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I had a horrible, horrible fantasy that I would just sort of stand up and say it's a really good paper and sit back down and that would be the end of it. But one day I was I was taking a walk in the morning and I realized that there were comments I could make, not so much with the paper, the paper was fine, but that there was a problem with the literature as a whole. Our body of knowledge on Civil War soldiers at that time was really written about men who had enlisted in the first year, and to an extent those who enlisted in 1862. So automatically we're looking at those who were the most ideological, the most motivated, and we were skipping a lot of men. We were missing substitutes, men who went into the army for pay in order for another man to be released. Uh, we were missing draftees. And in the Confederacy, the draft started very early. It started in April 1862. And we were also missing a lot of men who just for various reasons, none of which we really understood, um, did not enlist in 1861, but did so later. Uh, we really didn't even have a name for them. I called them later enlisters. So what I did that day in Washington was stand up and say exactly that. We have a problem with the literature. We say we're writing about the motivations of Civil War soldiers. We have stacks in the library full of books about the motivations of Civil War soldiers. And we're ignoring a lot of our pictures in, uh, I thought I was done. But after the session, a couple of folks came up and said, well, you need to write that book. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it would be a worthwhile project. And that's the origin of Reluctant Rebels. 
And why do you think they have been neglected in that sense? Why why has the focus been on sort of 1861, 1862 people who, who enlist? Well, I think part of it is just source material. Uh, one thing I discovered in the project is that draftees did not write a lot of letters home. Substitutes did not seem to write a lot of letters home. They tended to be poor men. Uh, I think they were often illiterate or barely literate. So we've lacked source materials. But I think there's a second reason too, is that at least among historians who have admitted their bias, uh, they don't like these men very much. James McPherson wrote a wonderful book called Cause and Comrades, which I think is the standard still on the motivations of Civil War soldiers. But he says in the book that he was not interested in men that he described as skulkers. He said, you know, they're not very interesting. I don't think they were very good soldiers. And so he, and I think others, made the decision to just ignore them. Um, Consciously or subconsciously, Civil War historians wanted to write about um, those brave young boys who enlisted in April and May 1861 and somehow wound their way to Manassas. And so to give us some background, how do you define this cohort of late enlisters as you define them? Well, I will confess that I was rather arbitrary in defining. uh, I knew I wanted to focus on men who had not fought or been in uniform at all in 1861. So that's what I did. I started going through files. And if a soldier had been in the army at any point in 1861, uh, I did not use him. In my sample, uh, ultimately 320 uh, soldiers in my sample, uh, I excluded anyone who had been in the army in 1860. That left me with potentially 370,000 Confederate soldiers who, for various reasons, uh, did not enlist or perhaps be uh, dragooned into the Army um, starting in 1862. So it's an arbitrary date. You know, in retrospect, I suppose I could have focused on the draft um, legislation in April of 1862, but I'm pretty comfortable with just saying these are the men who enlisted between 1862 and 1865. And honestly, I found one soldier who enlisted during the last week of the Virgin. He enlisted, he went into action on day two, and he was captured on day three. That was his military. So why did they enlist late? Well, you know, it's interesting in that they don't often say, uh, when we're reading letters or diaries from these men, and I should point out that I didn't use anything written after 1865. I wanted resources. When we read their letters and diaries, they're they're not talking a lot about why they did not enlist because they're talking to the same people who already know. They're talking to their wives, their parents. They were home when these decisions were being made. But they do refer to it occasionally, and, and some of them run, run the gamut. There was one young man who just essentially said, I'm, I'm afraid to go. Uh, there was another who thought he was making too much good money at his job. But by and large, um, I think family pressures were key, various kinds of family pressures. Half of these men in my sample were married. Many of them were parents. Um, they faced the decision of how best to defend their home. And by home, I, I try to complicate that. They Yes, they mean their family, but they also mean their property. If they're slave owners, they mean their enslaved population. They want to protect what they have. In 1861, a lot of them thought the best way to do that was to stay home and let the young men go off and fight. Um, when that situation changes, and it seems to many of them that the best way to defend what they have built up is to go off in the army, then they do that. One other thing that I would add, and I think the thing that perhaps surprised me the most in this 
study. They're not very ideological at all. Boys of 61, both North and South, were talking a lot about Republican government, democracy, cause, freedom, patriotism. Uh, the men in my sample really did not at all. Uh, if you count even one expression from a soldier of anything broadly defined as patriotism or ideology, uh, then you can say that maybe in my sample, 19%, 19% uh, expressed ideological reasons for enlisting. But most of them only wrote that once or twice. I think this combination of not being ideological, not being stirred by the speeches and the flag winds, coupled with their belief that they could better serve their own interests by serving at home, uh, is what kept them out of the army as, as long as they stayed out of it. Which brings me on to my next question. Well, what finally persuades them to join up? Well, what changes is that they begin to perceive threats that they cannot meet adequately at home, that only service in the army can deal with. Uh, for many of them in the Deep South, it was when Union armies began crossing their borders. Uh, if you're in Mississippi and the war is in Virginia and Tennessee, you don't have to worry about it so much. But once federal troops cross into Mississippi, suddenly the threat is looming. There's a big army coming down. Uh, toward your town, toward your farm. And by then, by 1862, something very interesting had happened. Um, the Union Army moved pretty quickly toward foraging and then destruction. It escalates throughout the war. It doesn't start with Sherman and Sheridan. It starts very early in parts of the upper set. And these men who enlist in 1862 start describing Union soldiers as vandals. More than any other phrase, they describe them as vandals. Vandals, large numbers of vandals are coming toward my county, are coming toward my farm or business. And so they conclude they need to join the army in order to stop those armies of vandals uh, before they arrive in, in X county. For those who are slave owners, and another surprising finding for me, 31%, almost one out of three of these men were from slaveholding families. They were slaveholders themselves or they were the son of slaveholders. Um, you have federal emancipation in 1860. The first coercion act has already happened, but then you have the second coercion act, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, in its preliminary form in September of 1862. I mean, that motivates a lot of these men as well, because again, they see it as a facet of the loss of their property, their future, their economic stability. So the fact that these armies of vandals are coming south, coming toward our homes, taking away enslaved people to freedom, uh, that motivates a lot of them. Not all of them, they're exceptions, but that's certainly why some of this. One other thing I will mention, um, well, two other things I've mentioned. One is that the Confederacy does create a draft in April of 1860. And it's an interesting draft in that it contains a lot of incentives as well as coercion. If you enlist now, you can get a small bounty. If you enlist now, you can pick your unit and go be with your brother and your father and your brother and your friends. So a lot of men, I think, make the decision, you know, if I've got to go into the army anyway, I might as well go in with people I know. I'll make a little money, my $50 bounty. Um, that's a fact. And for some of them, I eventually concluded about 11%. Um, the bounty was the primary cause. Inflation was already bad in the Confederacy by 1862. Uh, a lot of civilian labor had dried up. One out of 10, they were men who needed money. 
They just needed them. And it was the best way to go up and make what they saw as a wage. So did this cohort of late enlisters make effective soldiers in your analysis? I think it depends on how we want to define effective. You know, the Bible says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, I didn't see any evidence that their spirit was weak. When I started this study, people stopped me in the hallways at conferences and told me, well, you're just going to find out that they're all skulkers and deserters and they're the men who run away. I didn't find any evidence of that. They seem to be committed to serving as good soldiers once they are in uniform. Obviously, there are exceptions. But by and large, as a group, they really tried. And a lot of them end up in combat. What I think happens with these men, though, and it's the other side of the effectiveness issue, they tend to be older. Uh, I mean, the average age puts them in the 20s, but a lot of them are in their 30s. And physically, constitutionally, they're just not up to month after month of campaigning in the field. One of the things I wish I had done in the book was just simply count how many men died in combat and how many men died in the hospital. Luckily, Joe Glattar did that when he finally wrote the book um, that came out of that paper, I comment. And he came up with a really interesting um, statistic that I think echoed what I already assumed, what I thought, which is that the men who enlisted in 1861 were more likely to die of battlefield injuries than illness. But after that, the men who enlisted starting in 1862 were more likely to die of disease. I had guessed that already because so many of the men in my sample ended up writing their last letter from a hospital. But I think that that he has confirmed my impression. They just weren't up to it in the same way that um, I was up to playing American football when I was 17. But by the time I was 25 or 30, there's no way I could have heeded. So a lot of them just fell out by the wayside or ended hospice. So what kept this group serving uh, when they were with the Confederate forces? How did they cope with the, the, the rigors of active service and actually the, the reality of combat? Well, first of all, I think the family remains key. Uh, ties between husbands and wives, parents and children, as expressed in letters going back and forth, um, that's a sustaining motion. But beyond that, they're often with family members when they're in. Um, a majority of, of white Southern men in 1860 lived in small neighborhoods. These neighborhoods were defined by um, locality, but also by kin. A lot of them were interrelated. So when they went into the army, they were choosing to go into the, again, into companies where they knew people, where their brother was, where their brother was, where their cousin was, where their wife's uh, sibling was. And those family ties became important. And they became a kind of camaraderie. What was really interesting to me when I was putting together this sample is concluding that that camaraderie never really extended beyond those original primary groups. They don't seem to have made many new friends in the young people they did not. They seem lost when their family members are killed or taken to hospital. So it's a, it's a limited kind of, kind of camaraderie. It's a local, almost neighborhood camaraderie. And it reminds us, I think, that these Civil War companies, and I think this is true North and South, were really extensions of their communities. They were small adjuncts, or if you will, suburbs of their home community, miles away perhaps, but they're there with people. Uh, there are always people going back and forth, which I think is fascinating. There's always somebody from home showing up with money, taking letters back. So these community ties continue to be really important to them in terms of sustaining motivation. Now, the other 
side of that coin is that when they're there by themselves, when the brother has been killed and the cousin is sick in the hospital, uh, they do become much more weary of them. So I think that's important. Uh, one other thing I would mention uh, is religion becomes very important to them. They wrote a lot about religion. Uh, four out of 10 of the men in my sample wrote it about religion. And it's interesting what they did with evangelical Christianity. As I'm sure you know, by the mid-19th century, people in the West had imagined heaven, the world to come, as being a lot like the world they were in. They were going to be living in nuclear family units. They were going to be living in kin and neighborhood groups again, uh, except there would be no war, no death, no sickness. And so a lot of them are writing with that expectation, telling their wives or parents, I hope we meet again in this world, but if we don't, we will meet in the next so not only did this family of ties extend home front, the battlefront, they also extended from this world into the next world. And that faith that somehow they would be reunited with children's wife was really an important sustaining nation as well. Uh, I will say on the flip side, uh, things that I expected to find, I did not. As I said, I did not uh, locate uh, developing ties between men who did not know each other before. Um, unit pride didn't seem to matter to most of them. It did to some, but not the majority. Uh, very few of them wrote about good leadership. Uh, they were more likely to write about bad leadership. There were certainly generals they did not like. Uh, but all the things that I expected to find as someone who went to the University of Illinois when Professor John Lynn was there, all those things I expected to find, I usually did not. So a long answer to, to a, a pithy question is that I think in various forms, uh, the importance of kin and neighborhood were really important in keeping them in the army and eventually sending them into combat. Because again, when they go into action, who are they standing next to? Who are they literally elbow to elbow with? Their brother, their friend, their cousin. So did Confederate army policy have a role in shaping motivation of soldiers during the conflict? Well, I think it did in a way. Um, occasionally they would get leaves, but leave policies were spotty. It depended on the commanding general what was happening. Uh, there wasn't a lot of faith in advancement. Some men did advance as attrition. Um, at the beginning of their military careers, I think 71% of the men in my sample were privates. Uh, at the end, 60% of the privates. So there was some advancement, but it doesn't seem to motivate a bunch of them. I mean, they didn't get medals. They got very little distinction for heroism. Occasionally, they might be mentioned in a report or end up on what the Confederates called a roll of honor. Um, the Union Army institutes uh, the Medal of Honor during the war, but the Confederates never. Um, I think propaganda was important. Again, as I mentioned earlier, this notion that Union soldiers were just crazed Europeans, crazed Germans and Irishmen who were coming down to steal their property and burn down their houses and, and ravish their families. That sort of propaganda seems to have been very effective. And the money mattered for a lot of them, and not just those who enlisted for the bounties. I mean, they're constantly trying to send money home. Uh, they're not always getting paid. The Confederate dollar is becoming next to worthless. But getting that paycheck was into. And I guess finally, I would say that I don't think honor our, our, our great discussions of honor mattered very much to these men, but they were loath to give up. They were loath to desert because it meant leaving friends and family behind. When they did desert, they went home in family groups. So again, we're back to family. And I'm back to, and my final question uh, covers this in terms of what was the function and effect of con Confederate society and culture in sustaining and degrading or degrading motivation? I'm sort of thinking in terms of ideals of masculinity, social norms and community pressure. Well, I think all of those things are important. Um, if we accept 
the notion I've been stressing that these companies were extensions of the community, then what was happening back home in the community was important. Community was far from the fighting. If life was going pretty well, that had one effect on morale. If the community was occupied or under threat, if people were writing them about being hungry, you know, the cattle are gone, the hogs are gone, the Yankees came through and burned down the house, that had a very different effect on their motivation. So what was happening at home really did matter. In terms of masculinity, I mean, they live in a, a culture that is steeped in masculinity, and they are they are determined to prove their masculinity in the best way possible. It's complicated, though, because sometimes that means bayoneting an enemy soldier. Sometimes that means slipping out of camp and going home to keep the family from starving. Masculinity plays out in all sorts of ways. Uh, the man on the cover of my book was a North Carolina soldier named William Pinckney Klein. Klein was a blacksmith. He enlisted in 1862. He seems to have fought very well. After Gettysburg, he deserts, and he's gone until he turns himself in several months later. It turns out that Klein had gone home because a former comrade and a man from the neighborhood um, had gotten out of the army and went home and was telling all sorts of terrible rumors about the things Klein was doing when he was away from his wife, consorting with prostitutes and that sort of um, Klein's masculinity couldn't stand that. So he deserted. He went home. I'm not exactly sure what happened when he got home. I've never been able to find the proof. I'm convinced he went home and shot the guy. I'm absolutely convinced, but I can't prove it. And once he's done that, once he's rescued his reputation and masculinity, what did he do? He went back to the army, turned himself in, served several months in prison before they let him out again, and he's killed in the Battle of the Wilderness. I mean, that's a complicated story about masculinity. Masculinity for, for Bill Klein meant fighting sometimes, but it also meant deserting. And it also meant being man enough to come back and face the music. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work? Well, the book is Reluctant Rebels, the Confederates who joined the Army after 1861, published by the University of North Carolina Press. And uh, if anyone listening today wants to pick up that book and then ask me further questions, they're welcome to email me. I would be happy to talk about this project anytime. Ken, thank you very much for your time. Tom, thank you.